Hello and welcome to a, another episode of the Construction Corner Podcast. We are back live this week, so it's been <laughs> been a little while, guys, since we've gone live, done this live for just a whole bunch of reasons. Travel, uh, you know, it's summer. This is <laughs> what it is. So, Matt, my friend, how's it going in Michigan? Fantastic. The uh, the weather here in the last week has been insanity to say the least it has rained just cats and dogs every day for almost a week uh the sun is out now and we're dry things are moving again the sites are drying out it's uh it's a good time to be here awesome yeah it's been uh <laughs> very hot as we were talking about earlier uh so we just recently got ac like in the portion of california even when i lived in oregon like you didn't need ac like it's just it's cool enough for most of the year, you needed heat, but really, you know, maybe for a couple weeks a year. This year, it's been unseasonably warm. I drove up over the pass uh, last week, and there is like no snow up and down the entire Sierras. It's, uh, you know, which caused for alarm and like droughts and fire and all those other things. But uh, I was walking up the hill behind me yesterday, and there was a couple sitting in a two foot uh kind of barrier little kitty pool right now there's little plastic like dog pools but a nice like uh structured <laughs> kind of kitty pool on their porch sitting in lawn chairs in the water you know drinking some white claws or truly you know at six seven o'clock at night because it is just that hot it's like 95 it feels like a blast furnace we don't quite have the swamp cooler effect of the east coast but uh just <laughs> unseasonably warm yeah, yeah that, that sounds brutal. The East Coast always gets that humidity. So that's yes. <laughs> and if you were wondering, we do have a awesome special guest, uh, Scott Mason. He's got an exceptional resume. He's with the uh, Facility Health Inc. company. They do all sorts of stuff from asset management and life cycle to commissioning. And we'll talk all about healthcare today. Um, but his background a little bit is uh, really just hard work, right? So mm -hmm. I'm going to lead in with your your dad being a plumber and still going strong at yeah, 81, yeah. I think is one of the, the beautiful things and kind of, you know, coming into this industry, granted in a different role uh, than your dad, but just that hard work ethic uh, that's been instilled in you and you know, some military background, but without further ado, Scott, welcome to the Construction Corner Podcast. Hey, thanks, Matt. Thanks, Dylan. Appreciate it. And, and I've had some good conversations and, uh, and I think that uh, hopefully we'll be able to help out some people in the industry and uh, shed some light on things and, uh, and and maybe give some guidance. So free, free advice is always what it's worth. So there you, go. <laughs> you get what you pay for here. That, that's it. That's it. But oh, welcome. But, hey, but, I'm, I'm going to yeah. jump right in and, and ask because I didn't know this, but your father is a plumber. So my dad has been a plumber since 1962. Okay. He's uh, 81 years old. And I just talked to him this morning and he said he's got three jobs going and a commercial job and two residential. And he still, I mean, he wouldn't give up. My, my mom passed away this year and uh, he's downsized. And he bought a giant shed for all his tools and he won't give them up. And, you know, there's like for people in the trades, they'll get this, but there's soil pipe cutters and stuff in there that they don't even use. And I'm like, dad, 
you, you don't need this. Well, it's, it's, it's part of my life story. You know, he's got four foot pipe wrenches. I'm like, what the heck are you? I mean, but anyway, you know, I'd love him. And he, you know, you talk about hard work. He set the, he set the pace for that. He's still going strong. Uh, it's a, he, he's a, he's a, he's a lifelong learner, which is something that I, that I really embraced and, and, you know, still today, it's part of what drives me to help the industry that we're in and, and we're involved in and to look at issues and uh, gaps and help, and help solve those problems. But, you know, my earliest memories, uh, you know, my dad, I grew up in New England and he had a master's plumbing license in six states. So he worked all over New England. And part of that was if I wanted to spend time with him, I needed to jump in the truck and go with him. And so I grew up on construction sites. I grew up digging ditches and carrying soil pipe. I put my first toilet in when I was six <laughs> in the uh, pipe and tobacco shop in Methuen Mall in Methuen, Massachusetts. So, and uh, I drove a bulldozer that year that was bigger than our house. That was one of the things I remember. The thing was huge, but you know, that back in the days when you could go on sites and uh, I've always been involved with the trades. I, I swerved out of plumbing and went electronics when I went in the Navy. So it's still physics, all works the same. And, uh, you know, and then uh, after I got out of the Navy, I, I spent quite a bit of time in the life safety industry and applied the electronics to that. But really it became about people and processes. So that's how I ended up where I'm at today. I love it. That's a fantastic story about your father too. That uh, he should be commended for for still knocking it out at, at 81 years old. Oh. <laughs> yeah, he's still a craftsman. They, they, there are a few of those around still, and not not many. So not, yeah. tre treasure that because that that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, he always taught us your work is your signature. So I love it. Yeah, that's really a beautiful thing to live by. Is you know having the the craftsman the lifetime learner right i think those are those are some core values that you know we <laughs> we for sure can get behind and, well when, uh, you, when you look back at it it's great when you were when i was in the midst of it right he was teaching me how to sweat copper he you know i, I see a lot of med gas you know brazed pipe and copper stuff that he'd make me tear it apart sand it and redo it there's no way that he would accept that so it's uh you know it's more, uh, I would call it industrial today. It's more, you know, how, how much can we get in? How fast can we, can we get it in versus what does it look like? You know, is the pitch right? Is, are the joints sweat properly? All those things. So, but you know, what? I, I still notice that stuff. So I, I run a construction company and I will notice immediately when we have a, a plumber that's put in pipe, that's just beautiful or, or an electrician who's got, you know, runs of conduit that take all kinds of abnormal bends and shapes, but it's, it's organized and efficient. And those are the first things I, I clue into when I walk on one of our sites. So I, oh, yeah, I, I you walk in an electrical room and that conduit is just, it's art. Absolutely. You, you, you're like somebody, somebody was a craft, somebody was an artist. It's not, it's, it's beyond craftsmanship. So. Yeah. Definitely. And, and your work is your signature. That's a, that's a good one. I'm going to, I may steal that from your dad. There you go. 
And I think that gets us into to one of the first questions and topics to kind of dive into. And that's through the asset life cycles is, you know, if, if something's not, you know, installed properly, the craftsmanship isn't there, you know, how does that affect the life cycle of that particular, you know, system, product, everything that goes into it? Sure. No, that's a, it's, it's a, it's a great question. And right now, you know, infrastructure is on the tip of everybody's tongue, right? Everybody's got a different definition of it. We can, we can laugh or, or, or cry depending where you're at politically, but you know, the fact is we, we, especially in healthcare, uh, infrastructure has been ignored, right? It's, it's not sexy. It's an, an MRI is cool. A new wing is cool. A cancer wing is cool. Somebody will put their name on that, but, but they aren't going to put, you know, the Bill Smith air AHU, right? They, they, that's not cool. Or, you know, the Tony Davis uh, chiller project, you know, that nobody's got an, a plaque on it for it. So it, it's, it, it's something that, that is usually uh, hobbled along, I guess is the best way to, to put it. Uh, you know, we live in a throwaway society and unfortunately that has transitioned into how we maintain buildings and it's not just healthcare. I mean, you look at education, uh, you know, they're always trying to figure out, hey, how do we how do we make this last longer? And, you know, part of it is on the front end, what's the design? Uh, is it all about what's cheapest or is it about what's best? And when you get into asset life cycles, that, that really comes into play. Um, I know I know there's you mentioned you're going on a trip here up north and uh, there's a a hospital that I work with up there in Santa Rosa and they have a compressor. Um, I'm sorry, Novato. And they have a compressor that they change every five years because it fails that, that regularly. Oh, wow. And, and it, and the problem is to upgrade it to something else would cut, would, it would cost them so much money to reconfigure everything on, on the, the pad where they have it that they just, it's cheaper for them just to replace it every five years. And it's just, you think about that in terms of, you know, that, that, that's a design issue that probably could have been circumvented, you know, um, same hospital has, they, they built it, they built the whole hospital on pylons, right. But the pad that the generator and, the where the water and the electric and the high pressure gas all come in it it's not on a pylon and, and it's sinking away from the building so you know it, it just it's you know i'm sure that there was some value engineering there but at what cost and it, and it's usually the the downstream impact uh is is not noticed right off the bat right because when you look at you know when, when Dylan, you and I were talking originally, we talk about, you know, in general, architects protect their, their design. Contractors protect their contract. And everyone will say they're protecting the customer. But you're really protecting the budget and the time. And when it comes down to it and, and congruently with those. Uh, and even when you have a PDC team, that's associated with a, a hospital, 
they're all about time and budget. It's not about asset lifecycle costs. Uh, what's it going to take to maintain this? You know, there's lots of examples. Uh, fire barriers is one. Dampers is another. You fire doors. You 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 hear the maintenance guys. They're just pulling their hair out every day because they they have to deal with that downstream impact. And those typically aren't caught in a warranty period. And even if they are. The building got a certificate of occupancy and it met plans and specs and it's built to code. So the question is, is should it be built to code or should it be built to accreditation? And, you know, that's what I always ask is, you know, what, how's it going to be used? You know, if, if you, uh, if you commissioned a, a swimming pool to be built and it wouldn't hold water kind of, kind of doesn't really serve the purpose of its intent. And, uh, and that really is, is where we're at, I think, in, in that dialogue needs to be had uh, very openly because there's, 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 there's enough skin in the game on all, all parties, right, that, that need to be involved. Because if you look at it backwards from the, the contractor's side or the PDC side, they will say, yeah, every time I get my facilities department, this thing the budget is blown up right <laughs> if is that true and if it is then maybe we have a design issue in the beginning or we ha we have unrealistic expectations and I, and I think that there's got to be common ground so you know when when we talk about solving that problem uh, I think that'll lead to a an interesting dialogue maybe how that can be solved and with you guys experience I you can help shed light on the other side of the coin because, uh, you know, I, I think there's a lot of value in having these discussions. So there's a lot to unpack in, in what, what you just Sorry. said. Yeah. There's a lot of good stuff there. Um, I want to start with the, the design side. So with facility health and in your role there, do you, and I'm asking just out of sheer naivety, do, do you get involved ever on the front side or are you specifically back end after commissioning or, or what, what is your forte there? And, and, and how do you see it best working out? Is it best for you to be at the table with us and our design team? Sure. Let, let me, uh, let me, I'll, I'll do a little background that, that'll help. So facility health came out of, we're about, we're seven years old and we are a, a SaaS software company uh, that, that has a consultative wing or arm. Our co-owner also owns an MEP company that does design predominantly in healthcare. And uh, as part of that, yes, involved in master planning, uh, involved on the design side, also uh, heavy on the commissioning, especially with analytics. He, he doesn't believe that um, commissioning should really be approached without analytics, uh, especially during that warranty period. It will actually get to prove your design. So uh, so I, I think a whole other subject that, that we could swerve into. But so that so that's the, the kind of the background and the genesis of of facility health is they started out, uh, we started out to solve a problem on the capital planning and capital renewal side. 
how do you prioritize the assets that you have? Because in the facilities world, uh, especially the old school way, way is you'd ask your facility manager for a budget and they'd either give you somewhere between a napkin and an Excel spreadsheet. And if you ask for the same budget the next year, those items may not be on that list, right? Because it's it's more emotional. What What is going on at the time that I ask you for that budget? So one of the things that we created is, you know, through we start out with a facility condition assessment on uh, either we can do it or the site can do it. And we look at all the uh, MEP assets. We tier them so that the customer can scope out exactly what they want done. But we can, uh, anything you you would describe or, or term as an asset, usually it's a dollar vo- uh, value or a uh, high need or, or uh, a high risk uh, asset is something that they would put in their tier one. So that's typically where we go. But the, then our software, we, we, we're tied in with RS means and we can look at the costs. Uh, we, we do a risk ranking. We, we use uh, a four-part risk ranking currently that looks at uh, redundancy. It looks at area served. It looks at what kind of maintenance requirements it, it has. We uh, look at uh, various risk attributes, like what will happen, you know, NFPA 99 risk assessment. So we'll look at those and we'll assign it a score. So now if you have a if you have two air handlers, let's say, and they were both installed in 1984, they're due for replacement. Well, the first thing you look at is what, what's their, uh, how are they performing, right? So let's say all those things are even. They're both, they were both installed in 84, and they're both uh, mediocre in their performance. Well, where do they serve? Well, one serves the atrium and the other serves ICU. So if you have a limited fund, it, it, it makes sense, right? But if you're a donor, maybe you want the atrium so that it feels good in there when they're reading your name on the wall. I mean, I, and, uh, so it, 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 it's, it's along those lines that you look at. So we are able to actually risk rank their assets as well as what condition they're in, as well as when were they installed. So you can look at all three of those components and determine what risks, but what assets bubble to the top, right? And and when you look at it nationally, uh, we just had a report published in uh, HFM magazine that we did in con- in conjunction with uh, American Hospital Association, where about forty five percent of all assets, MEP assets in health in healthcare facilities are past their useful life. They're in a deferred status. So when you look at that, you know, it doesn't mean they're all bad, but let's be, so we're all honest, right? I mean, I have a 20 year old uh, Yukon XL and the thing runs great. I'm not going to jump in it and drive it out to see Dylan though. So, but you know, for driving around, it's a great vehicle. It gets our grandkids around. It's a, it's a great, great vehicle, but it, it's, it's not new and, and there is risk, right? Every day that you are not PMing it or 
or even every, every day that you're using it, you're, you're accumulating risk. So you have to determine what are those risk attributes. Um, so when you get your uh, limited amount of money, so let's say you've, you've got 25 million in deferred assets, anybody that gets 25 million should be thankful that they got 25 million to repair that because usually it's, well, I can give you three, you know, and it's like, can I get three a year? And and then maybe we can get ahead of this stuff. So there, there are health systems that, that that's what we do. We help them look at it from a long-term perspective and generate a plan versus this is a crisis. So we, we get them out of a triage state. Um, we have a discovery process. We bring them in what we call a fitness program. And then we move into wellness, which is a long-term care. So that is kind of in a nutshell, how we approach it, but it's all software driven. Um, does a lot of other things. We do OPEX, you know, COVID was a, uh, COVID was a uh, painful in the industry, right? For the healthcare industry. Uh, financially, there's billions of dollars that was lost in hospitals. And that translates into, you know, how do we continue to maintain because the square footage of the buildings didn't get any smaller um, and they still had to be maintained, but the dollars to maintain them dried up. So, it, you know, it became more of a priority to figure out how to do that. And one of the conventional uh, processes that a lot of institutions are using is reduction in force, right? You know, everybody contributes evenly. Well, I already said, if you had a million square feet, it didn't get any smaller and you still need a, a certain amount of headcount to maintain that. And if everybody's contributing 10% of their headcount, that could get, that could put them, that could further exasperate, right? What's already going on. So, so we get into the operational side as well. Okay. Th that was the long way to get to that. So sorry. No, that's okay. That's all right. Um, so with, with facility health and your, your ties to the owner's other interests, um, are you, I, I get it. You're primarily probably MEP, but when you're doing assessments, do you also wrap in the other building systems, facade, glazing, roofing, you know, is it a holistic package that no, you No, gr great question. Yeah. Yes. So, uh, our, our standard is all MEP assets and then facades, glazing, uh, floors and walls, uh, rooftops, uh, parking garages, those, those type of things that are some of the bigger assets and quite honestly, higher risk. I mean, when you look at a roof, we, we, we look at that as a clin almost a clinical asset. I mean, if, if you've got, if you've got water, you're going to have an infection control problem. So, um, you know, we have a, a we have a great picture of a uh, that we show of a of an area of roof that is in terrible condition, and it's over a mechanical area, but all three floors below it are OR. You know, and it's mm -hmm. like so. If we have a rain issue, if we have a water event you just shut down your main revenue stream. So never mind, create a lot of, uh, infection control issues. So, 
Yeah, exactly. You know, we can look at any asset. Um, we have a lot of customers that like us to look at life safety assets. The problem is, you know, a $40 fire extinguisher and you've got a couple hundred of them, all of a sudden those or emergency and exit lights start bubbling to the top because they're high risk. And uh, it's, it's more of a something that you just buy out of your operational budget versus your capital budget. So, sure. Yeah, there's a few big pieces I want to touch on. One is, you know, if you're in areas prone to losing power, which <laughs> as we've seen over the last year, California, Texas, as we saw in like hurricanes with Sandy in New York, right? A lot of these places are prone to power outages. And one of the things for like your emergency systems, especially in hospitals, is you need to maintain a 96 hour runtime. Yep. Um, so in there, you know, one of the major things that happened with Sandy is if all the tunnels get shut down in New York, can you bring diesel fuel in? Answer was no. No. So they had whatever, <laughs> whatever fuel was on site and that was it. Yeah. So one of the things to, when you're doing these risk assessments is, is that on, you know, can you fulfill these, you know, legal mandates? Sure. On, on top of that is, Looking at projects, if you're doing an MRI, an ICU, you know, something that somebody wants to put their name on is to include, okay, you know, whatever, the MRI is a million dollars. That's just for the MRI. Right. <laughs> on top of that, now you need everything to operate it, but we might as well do things while we're in here around that MRI to, you know, is an air handler in the corridor need to be replaced? Does, uh, yeah. you know, anything adjacent to this need to be dealt with and you can put it into those projects and then you know it's all leading to you know the ors mris the shiny objects that we put into hospitals that do yeah. get donors and to wrap some of these infrastructure projects into those versus a standalone uh infrastructure projects you know like to replace any of the electrical gear <laughs> that you yeah. probably can't get to that's in a basement that's you know, got three floors above it in a hospital situation or generators or <laughs> pilings or piers. Yeah. Oh, no, you swerved, you swerved right into the, uh, so Matt asked me a question early on, right? How, or, or before I went on my soap, got on my soapbox, so I apologize, <laughs> but it's, it's how, you know, where do you want to come into the process? And quite honestly, that it just answered the question, right? When you are looking at, Hey, we're going to, we're going to rehab the fifth floor and put in a, I don't know, a cancer center, you know, let's say. Uh, when we start to look at those things, then that's when we should start having that infrastructure conversation. So one of the things we're able to do is we're able to take that, isolate that, because it's not just, hey, what assets are, are on that fifth floor, but what assets serve that fifth floor? So you're able to look at that and say, hey, from a risk standpoint, these are things that we should look at. So, you know, you floors and walls are easy, right? Because that a lot of times comes under branding and beautification. So you, you get projects funded that way. But when uh, and when you're doing a renovation, it's all part of, you know, making sure that you've got great wayfinding and all those things come into effect. But what about, you know, the the devices that are serving that area? You know, you mentioned, you know, ATSs. We see ATSs that 
they're antiques man. they should be in a museum somewhere and 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 you're thinking why is that important well here, here's why it's important if your generator turns on and your ats doesn't switch over you're you, you don't have power and you will be shut down and it's as simple as that and uh well, and on, on that too, just as a point for some of the new code requirements for, and again, a lot of the health requirements go to the state. It's not necessarily done at a federal level. So with your state healthcare code um, and your facility guidelines uh, to know that one of the things that has been implemented over the last few years is you do need a two-way communication protocol for your ATSs. And this is a very like in the weeds type thing, but you need a you've got to put a communication link in your transfer switches to make sure that it reads from the generator that start signal, as well as going back the other way to say that it, it works and then to have a dashboard of all your ATSs, which in a hospital could be 50, 60, uh, you know, a lot of transfer switches throughout for all your critical branch, your emergency branch, and then you're just standby loads. Sure. So it's, a, it's a big deal. Same with damper positioning switches, right? Yep. I mean, that, that's often a uh, value engineered item that that gets taken out, and uh, you know I, I get it. I mean, is is it is it necessary? No, but we're moving into a different uh, different time in in where skilled trades are far fewer and maybe less experienced. Cause I don't want to, I, I think there's people like my nephew that, you know, we're staying with, he's a, an apprentice electrician, right? Second year apprentice. He started out, went to college, got to year three in computer science. And he's like, man, I, this isn't what I want to do. I want to do something with my hands. And, you know, and we talked about it and with his mom and dad and we, you know, and, and he loves what he does, you know, and ironically he works in hospitals and he loves it. And, uh, so, but when you start to look at the direction things are going, you know, I mentioned analytics on commissioning, you know, we're not too far off from the building of the future being remotely monitored and dispatching a, you know, a, a SEAL team to go fix it instead of having a whole army, regular army camped out there. So I, I, I can see that we have, uh, there's some healthcare systems out there that we work with and they have uh, general trades in the building. And then they have for triage, they have uh, more of the skilled trades that show up as needed. And if you can get predictive, that even becomes better. So, so I want to touch on, on that a little bit. So I get it that the, you know, best case scenario would be to have you at the table from the very beginning and then we can all collaborate and, and come up with a design that's that's going to fit the needs of the user whether that's a hospital or a school or an office uh, but also you know protect the asset for the future but let's shift away from that now to where i assume a lot of your work is done on, on buildings where you weren't involved in the design where you're brought in after the fact so when you go in to do a, an fca on a on an older building uh, and this kind of ties into what you brought up about, you know, general lack in skilled trades. How do you as a, as a group approach that? Do you have your own people that go in to do the assessment or do, or do you seek, you know, local uh, 
uh, MEP experts or, 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 you know, building experts? How, how do you approach that from a, uh, just from an overall global standpoint of, of who, who's going to go and set which condition this building is in, who, who decides yeah. if it's a good, bad or indifferent? No, great question. You know, and, and, and part of that becomes a scalability question, right? And for us, we currently have our own staff of engineers, uh, SMEs, some of them are, you know, they're master electricians that worked in those facilities. Um, somebody that has experience to be able to do a proper assessment. So we, we don't have a, a bunch of college interns running around with iPads. So, you know, <laughs> hey, there are there are companies. I'm just saying, uh, we, I, we we see it a lot, and I've seen them, and I yeah, <laughs> that's what I was getting towards. No, no, we'll actually we want to go in, and and part of our process isn't just to to go look at the equipment, right? Because we sometimes you can't you can't go in a fan room, right? Because it's running without shutting it down. So you have to count on the on-site. Uh, experts, the people that live with that product, every that that piece of equipment every day, to tell you about it. Hey, when was when was the fan wall replaced, or when did you replace a motor, or we've got a vibration and a shaft, and you know uh, this thing is forty years old, and if if it falls apart, it's going to explode because of the way it's made. It's you know all those things that that you wouldn't necessarily get by peeking your head in, right? Reading a nameplate, which is, you know, that you could get me on another soapbox between FCAs or commissioning. Cause a lot of times it's more of a, it's more of a uh, transactional or a tactical thing that's done. Let's just check the box that, that we, we, we looked at the asset. We started it up. Did you run it through its paces? I mean, yeah. So Scott, if you want to, while we're, while we're here, how do you define commissioning? What's the, what's your definition or facility health's definition of commissioning? Well, I am, I am far from a commissioning expert, but I get to play one in my job. So I, <laughs> I, I, I defer to what, you know, our team has done and uh, we incorporate everything from OPRs right, right in the beginning. So it's, so we're heavily involved from the client interface as well, it, but with the design team, so that it so that that bridge that we're talking about, it is is maintained at least the dialogue for it, because, I mean, everybody has wish lists that they want, right? Some, I've I've been in project meetings where they want this wall done and it's sixty thousand dollars for the wallpaper. You know, and it's like, is, is that, I mean, we're talking about that you, you you can't do this thing over here that you really need to do, but we're going to have wallpaper. We're going to commission an artist to do it. And it's like, I get it. Um, there there are competing interests. And, and I think we have to balance all those out. Because the last thing we want is the institutionalized buildings, right? That, um, that don't bring anybody peace when they're in there. But the, the other side that went for the commissioning process is more of a phased approach. It's, it involves uh, being there not only for the startup, but being able to observe some of the installation practices, right? 
as part of the startup, it isn't just, hey, turn it on, let's see what it does. It's turn it on and let's see if it performs the way it's supposed to perform. And, and then we always have a training component that's part of that. So it, it's important that, uh, that it's not just a, a, a stack of OEMs, right? In the old days, it was a stack. Now it's a electronic file that goes somewhere that nobody ever opens or reads it. And, and unfortunately all those things are needed down in, in, you know, in that time continuum downstream. So it's about doing the training. It's about giving people an opportunity to ask the questions, uh, look at how they're going to maintain it. I mean, well, one that we see all the time is dampers. I mean, you know, joint commission, right. The, one of the accrediting organizations, will not allow you to put inaccessible for a damper as a failure reason. So, so the question is, how did it become inaccessible? Because that was generally done during construction. Somebody put it there. Somebody put it there and somebody put a piece of ductwork or a piece of conduit or a piece of pipe or a bundle of low voltage cable or something, right? usually not in the first construction the first construction is it's good maybe uh, subsequent <laughs> maybe. is where i've seen it typically is the, the bim world the bim do. world is helping that out quite a bit right where you've got For an sure. access shaft so but um it, it it as you know i mean it's uh what, what do you call it uh eminent domain he who gets there first you know Gets it. I've seen contractors put pipes through ductwork and do all kinds of things, almost out of spite. But it's it's you, you deal with that. But but those are things that you know you deal with downstream. That that becomes an accreditation issue because it's low hanging fruit for the surveyors, and uh, they just look at the report and say, "What do you mean it's not accessible?" And now you, now you've got to solve a problem by cutting a hole in a wall. Or, or moving st stuff that really can't be moved. So, so, so those are some of the, some of the issues. Um, well, and on that too, so with, with healthcare, so people that are not familiar with the healthcare world, Joint Commission is like the, the bane of everybody's existence in a way. It is uh, like <laughs> all hands on deck if Joint Commission is in the building. Uh, for the week or whatever that they're there to inspect the facility. So that's a uh, pass fail, like you need to fix it or you lose your hospital license kind of deal. If yeah, you so they get their funding through CMS, right? Center for Medicaid Services. And the more urban or the more rural you are, you tend to have a more, more of a burden on Medicaid services, reimbursement. So... Um, Anybody that receives Medicaid funding has to become accredited through one of the AOs or through CMS. You can go direct to CMS uh, and you decide wh which one you want to go to. I, I won't use this platform to give my favorites, but you can reach out to me direct and I'm happy to. Um, <laughs> but, you know, having that, panic mode every three years is, is, is not something that is conducive to, uh, 
a good employee or patient experience. Let me just say it that way. Cause every, everybody does go into panic mode. And, and so getting a hospital open, you get your certificate of occupancy from your construction and then you move into accreditation and the building may or may not be built for accreditation. It's built for its occupancy. It's built to get your CFO. It's built per plans and specs and building codes, hopefully. But let's assume all that's true, but it may not be have been built for accreditation. So I'll give you a quick example. There's a, a hospital or in a, a hospital in Tennessee, they built an MOB. And then they, they said, well, let's put an ambulatory surgical center in that MOB. Everybody's excited, right? They got a little revenue producer in that cost-sucking building, right? And so now they go for accreditation and the surveyor, Joint Commission surveyor says, where's your two-hour fire separation between your building occupancy and your ASC? So what, what was probably a $200,000 fix or, or, or build during construction is now a two and a half million dollar problem that delays the project by 90 days. And, you know, we look at that and say, well, that's an outlier. I'm working with a number of hospitals right now and there's a lot of those outliers and it's, it's, it, it's, it's no one's fault, but it's everyone's responsibility, I guess is the way, you know, that, that we need, I think we need to look at that. So um, I think, at some point that will bridge into our, how do you solve that problem? But it, it's going to have to be a collaborative discussion because there are costs and, and there are, uh, there is involvement from the client and the contractors and the architects and, and the facilities department. Everybody has to have an ownership stake in making sure it's right. So, so who does the, the burden responsibility of something like that fall on them. And, and this, you know, in all candor, this is out of my wheelhouse. We don't work on hospitals. So I'm, sure. I'm very unfamiliar with this, but you know, if you, if you hire a design team in my world or you hire me as a design builder and we design a, a, a product and we produce it and it, it meets all of your, your intrinsic needs. And it obviously passes building code. It gets a CFO. If you come to me after the fact and say, we have this, surveyor who's going to say it, it doesn't meet another level of accreditation or another level of, of approval, where does the burden of responsibility in that typically lie? Yeah. The owner, unfortunately, that, 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 and it, you know, you talk about, you know, we started off the conversation talking about budgets being squeezed, especially operational and capital budgets. If you built a new building, you have no capital budget, right? The, they don't even want you to do preventive maintenance on the new equipment because it's new. You don't have to, right. you know, um, they may not even provide staffing for that, for that new building. And uh, so you, you have to maintain that building with your current financial, your current resources, people and money. And, and a lot of times, you know, when it comes down to uh, an omission like that, right. Cause you would think that would be covered under an errors and omission. But the argument is it met plans and specs, it, it right? It met, it got its certificate of occupancy. Uh, 
So, that, you know, there's, there's, there is that battle, you know, and I've said, well, just add one, one sentence must meet accrediting organizations guidelines, you know, and they're like, yeah. well, that opens up a whole new <laughs> risk on the other side, right? When you're the general contractor and the architect. So, so to take that MOB example, so medical office building, now you're, in, so a couple of things to kind of roll back a little bit is under that you're now under business occupancy, which is a whole different set of design criteria. You do not have to meet any hospital code. It's a straight up office building. You're not, right. you know, going to joint commission. You're not under, it's not submitted to the health department. It is an office building. It's an Just, office building. <laughs> that's what it is. It's the doctor's office building, yep. medical office building. So it falls under that business classification or that classification. So in hospitals, typically there are many different types of occupancy uh, ratings, classifications throughout that, that facility. So in the case of uh, they, you built an office building, right? And then they come back or halfway through or whatever the case might be, say, hey, we wanna add surgery center to this. Now you fall under a different thing. So that is purely on the owner of, you told us you wanted a, right. <laughs> you know, an apple, and then you switch to now we want an orange or we want apples and oranges in the same basket. And now right. oh, wait, you got to build a different basket to hold the thing. So that's uh, to kind of clarify a little bit on the occupancy ratings for yep. those types of facilities, which goes back to the owner, not doing the proper like program for their facilities. And it, you know, and then there's a whole bunch of other stuff of, uh, you know, how far away from a hospital you have to be for offsite ambulatory for uh, finances for like Medicare and stuff. Right, all there's, those things. Yes. There's, there's a big can of worms that gets opened for going into now offsite, uh, yes. you know, surgery centers, you know, it's where it's a outpatient procedure. You don't, cause now you don't have beds, you don't have, you know, anything else. You're not doing intake. Right. right? It's right. a whole, you know, your, your life safety is a lot of what changes because, the patient can no longer uh, evacuate themselves, right? Because a lot of people maybe, you know, I don't know what exactly the demographics of the, uh, the this audience are, but, you know, hospitals are built to defend in place of fire, not to evacuate. Where buildings like schools and commercial buildings, they're built to evacuate. Sure. So a, a, a hospital is compartmentalized. It's a lot like I was in the Navy and uh, nobody ever likes to hear flooding, flooding, flooding when you're out in the middle of the ocean. But fortunately, <laughs> theoretically, the ship is designed so that you can have some flooding. And uh, but but when you look at it, you know, uh, the MOB ASC example, that was always going to be an ASC in an MOB. It was just quite honestly an oversight. It was. uh you can go back every, everybody has skin in the game, right? Everybody saw the drawings. They knew what it was going to be. I've been in another hospital where, you know, they didn't have sterile processing outside their ORs and the new, new CNO was hired and she's like, where, where's my sterile processing? And they're like, sterile processing. What do you mean? I mean, this is supposed to be a healthcare architect and a healthcare GC team, you know? And it's like, Everybody's got to be involved because it's it, there. 
I think healthcare is a very emotional build. It's almost like residential building, non-spec homes, customs, custom homes. It's a very emotional uh, experience. So it's. Yeah. And one of the things too, to remember when we're talking about fight in place, it's for fire ratings. So typically you think just walls, right? To our fire rated wall, it's wall deck and floors. It's complete two hour barrier for a lot of that stuff. So you're looking at, you know, drywall ceilings, you're looking at concrete floors. Like it, it is yeah. not a <laughs> half dampers. hour ceiling. Yeah. And yeah. dampers like everything else. It's, yeah, it's a, it's a, big deal. <laughs> it's a, I have a lot of, uh, ties back. My, my grandfather managed farms, so he had milking stools around. If you've ever seen a milking stool, right, they have three legs. Yep. So there's a, you know, fire barrier management's a three-legged milking stool. It's a, it's a three-legged stool. It has dampers, it has doors, and then it has barriers, whether that's floors, ceilings, and walls. So and, and all those have to be maintained to that fire rating, though. So. Well, Scott, I first of all, I appreciate you coming on. This is a, a facet of our industry that I I still don't know a lot about, but I knew absolutely zero about uh, prior to starting this conversation. But I, because you come from a, a very a different aspect of the industry, I'd like to ask you a question we often get into with with lots of our guests, and and that is, what in your mind is is the biggest problem you see in in our industry, in in the construction industry globally, and uh, the bigger question, how do we attack it? Yeah, we get asked that a lot because we do consultative work on solving this problem, right? I mentioned we're doing gap analysis with a number of healthcare systems right now between their PDC teams and their facility management teams. And, and I think one of the things that it comes down to is those two teams are typically siloed in every organization. And it would be great if they were made to, you know, if you watch the old police shows, they're all sitting at the same desk facing each other. That, that would be great if they had to come into the same office and have lunch together. So they had to solve problems together, you know, and, and and I think because that PDC team is the is the liaison. Sorry about that. Technical technical. No kids right. or animals, just my lighting. <laughs> so, uh, you know that that PDC team is the uh, the opportunity for the owner's voice. Right. They they are the the conduit to the contractors and the architects and engineers. So I, I think that that is a key element that if we can solve that communication breakdown issue uh, and, and express the needs, because I think there's frustration, right? If, you, if your job is to protect the, the budget and the timeline, and that's how you're measured, what, what are you going to protect, right? If, if, if your job is to protect the asset life cycle, how, how are we going to maintain this for the future? You know, that's the, the heart that, that our, the facilities team looks at. You know, they look at little things like blocking and walls. Why wasn't this blocking done properly? Well, it's because it was cheaper, easier, and more expedient not to do it. Is it a code requirement? No, 
but it should be somewhere in the hospital's requirements if it's needed. Because as they've learned downstream, they may need that. So I think that communication is, is important. I think as in every industry that I've been involved in, having good partners is, is part of that. So if you have a great internal communication and, and we can put some systems and processes and guidelines in place, you know, bumper rails, if you will, so that that everybody knows what the rules of engagement are and, and how, how we're going to solve these problems, then we can communicate that up to our partners. Because if, if, if we look at our general contractor as just a contractor, that, then you're probably going to get low bidder. You're, you're not going to get the one that's invested in what you're trying to achieve as a client. And uh, similarly with your architect, if, if, if you want the architect that is best known for their artistic flair, you know, and <laughs> that's, that's great. You know, we, we, we beat up architects, you know, one of, one of my good friends, she's an architect in Grand Rapids and, and, uh, and I always, I always give her a hard time. I'm like, Hey, if you're doing master planning and you hire an architect, that's what you're going to get a new building. Cause that, that, that's what architects do. Um, but actually she has a different approach, but that's a whole other subject. We, we can talk. I get you, I can get you in touch with her, but, um, but when you look at that whole process, it's, it's understanding what everybody's, all these different stakeholders, not only responsibilities are, but what's their passions, right? And, and nobody has the intent of, I'm going to make us build a screwed up building and punish the facilities team for the rest of their lives. No, nobody starts a project that way. Everybody's got great intent and they want to do what's best. And, and I think let, let's start there and then figure out how to build those gaps. I think that is communication uh, is, is I, I, I can't say that enough. You know, if your top three things, communication, 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 it's like being married. So <laughs> great, great answer, Scott. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, that's where I would start. And, and how you do that, it, it really is a culture shift. And, uh, you know, that starts internally with the organization and they have to, they have to, A, it's, they have to understand they have a problem, you know, and, and, and then be okay with creating an environment that people can solve that problem and work collaboratively. So Scott, where can they find you? So I'm at facilityhealthinc.com or uh, s.mason at facilityhealthinc.com or on LinkedIn, Scott Mason. Uh, happy to have, you know, future discussion. If somebody disagrees, love to, that's how I learn. So I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I said I'm a lifelong learner and I will apply that. I will actively listen and, and, and take whatever, whatever valuable insight you have to share with me. So, but. I, I, I think that's probably that's probably the other important part. Don't don't be so don't be so married to your opinion that you're the only one that that, that thinks it's right. Because I think a lot of these decisions are made in vacuums, and uh, not everybody is taken into consideration. All the stakeholders. So. Scott, thank you so much for coming on and spending an hour with us and our listeners and. Uh, that's Guys, quick. 
<laughs> it does. Time flies when you're having fun. Absolutely. Yeah. I know we covered primarily healthcare today and, and healthcare facilities, but a lot of these lessons, a lot of the downstream stuff goes into a lot of other building types. You know, hospitals are some of the most complicated buildings you can put together, yeah. but it, it goes to show, you know, from a facility standpoint, from a owner standpoint, from a design team to a contractor, you know, having that team together, whether you're building a school, right. Dealing with people that have never built a building in their life. And now they're taking on, you know, a 20 to $80 million project yeah. <laughs> is a, is a big change for, for most. So whatever types of project you guys are building, again, keep communication at the forefront of it. Um, one of the big things too, is to put together some checklists, some standard things to go through and what you need for a given facility type. I know that's <laughs> not a sexy thing to, to do, but it's a functional piece that'll really help your communication. And, you know, as with all of our shows, guys, if you, you like it, if you learn something, go ahead and share with a friend, share with somebody else in this industry. Our, our whole mission here, our whole kind of guiding principle is to help the industry. We're going to talk about stuff that, that doesn't get talked about or does at the lunch table or behind closed doors, but not out in the open. And we want to bring a lot of these things, you know, just to the forefront of, of kind of lessons learned, you know, nobody's, uh, we're not naming names. We're not doing anything like yeah. that, but to bring lessons learned to the forefront and from our experience, from things that have gone good or bad on projects and, uh, to help you guys become better. So that's the whole premise of this show. And so share it, get the word out. And, uh, we thank you all for listening. Yeah. Appreciate you guys. You're doing great work. And, and I, I think that's the heart of it, right? How, how can we help others get better? We're, none of us can do it alone. So, Yep. You nailed it, Scott. Thank you. Yep. You guys have a great night. We'll see Have you. a happy fourth. See ya. Likewise. And that is yep. this episode of the Construction Corner Podcast. Until next time.